Second Timothy chapter three. beginning at verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. Father, we come to your holy word, which is enable us to be complete, and we desire, O oh God, that you would help us to understand it, to love it, to cherish it, to live it out. I pray that you would enable me to faithfully preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we've been going through a few of the things that form some of the foundation of what drives the vision of this church. And we looked uh, two weeks ago at the hope-filled eschatology of post-millennialism. There are very few things that have given me such motivation, such enthusiasm, and strong faith as the hope-filled vision of the Puritans. The second issue we looked at was the full-orbed grace of God, not the wimpy stuff that you a lot of times hear about in evangelical circles. We were looking at not only at what grace is, but at what grace is not, the antithesis. And we were looking at grace through the window of all of God's attributes. And we saw there's an incredible richness to this subject, but it's absolutely imperative. If we do not have God's grace, everything that we build in this church is just a house of cards that can be smashed down. No, no, no way that it will stand. We need to be convinced that without him we can do nothing. We need to also be convinced we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Now today, I'm going to be, I uh, was planning actually to look at the the whole issue of God's law, but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, that's really not everything that's involved in the blueprints of God. It's far more than the laws of God. The promises of God are equally as important as the laws of God are in terms of giving blueprints to those uh, who uh, ask the hope of the uh, uh, reason of the hope that lies within us. And it's not just the promises, the declarations of Scripture are important as we're formulating, you know, axioms for science and we're looking at uh, the declarations of the way things work and the way things were back then the whole world view is really important so i thought well a better way of phrasing it what we want to look at and what is the thing that makes our church unique what drives our vision is that we believe in the whole bible to the whole person the whole bible to the whole person that's what grips me that's what gives me real passion that god's word is sufficient to equip us and speak to every area of our lives, to economics, to politics, to our marriage relations, to philosophy, to psychology, doesn't matter what you're looking at, it is the whole Bible that provides the answer to the whole of our lives. Now, <clears throat> um, it's nice in theory, and it's a neat vision to give to those who are outside the church, but I'm preaching to you, and so I want to make this practical to where we are at as a congregation. And one of the things that the book of James drives home to us is that we really only believe as much of the Bible as we're practicing, as we are living out. And uh, we can think of examples from regular life uh, to illustrate this. If you said, you know, I really believe it's important to save up for retirement, 
but you haven't done so in 20 years, we could question whether it's really at the core of what your beliefs are. You know, we call opinions things that are out here that you sort of tentatively hold to, but it doesn't take much to make you deviate from that. But a belief is something that's going to drive you to action. It's going to govern the way that you, uh, the way that you work. For example, if a person in California says that she believes that the whole coast is going to fall off into the ocean and uh, that they could lose everything, but she's not moved out of Southern California, you can very legitimately doubt that she thinks it's going to happen in her lifetime. Okay, it's a gamble. Yeah, it could happen. The odds are against it happening, I think, is probably what they're thinking. So it's not really something that drives uh, her behavior. It's not causing any action to take place. Now, there can be an admixture of belief and unbelief in our heart. And you can think of the, the guy that brought his son to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus asked him, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> he recognized, you know, unbelief keeps creeping up in our hearts. But the point is, he had enough faith that it drove him to go to Christ, right? He had action. And so even there, it really was at the core of his being, it was enough to say, it's not just theoretical, I've got to go to Christ. He is the source of my help. Now, this past week, I sent Edmiston's book to you. And uh, I want to give a quote that I thought was very good along these lines. He had been discussing how our beliefs profoundly affect our emotional life. And then he made a statement that I think relates to what we're talking about today. He said, someone may say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. That's good. Such a person should then do works consistent with a belief in an afterlife and a reward in heaven. For instance, they should be able to sacrifice material reward in order to gain spiritual reward. Or they should do good deeds that no one notices, believing that they will be rewarded in heaven. But if they live entirely materialistically, then they're denying their professed faith. If we were to look at the true thoughts and intents of the heart of a materialistic person, their real beliefs would probably have very little to do with eternal life. Their belief in the resurrection is simply held for the sake of doctrinal conformity or intellectual conviction and has little power in a person's life. It is, in effect, a very sick or a dead belief. Works are a guide to us as to whether or not our faith is truly alive, saving, living, and productive. Our works indicate to the world which beliefs we hold that are strong enough for us to live by and act on. Works are a reliable guide to what we truly believe in our hearts. In a sense, our works are our true doctrine. Our works are the outworking of those beliefs which we are prepared to act on, live by, and stand for in daily life. And he goes on to show how uh, Christ's beliefs motivated him, how uh, his emotions factored into that. And you're going to have to, if you weren't at the meeting uh, a week ago Wednesday, you'll have to ask the men that were there. Uh, there's some material in the book that was passed on, but uh, uh, there's not a whole lot of overlap between the two. But this morning, what we are aiming is not just a doctrine about the whole word to the whole person, but we're talking about something that affects us and drives us, a belief that is foundational, drives us emotionally, psychologically, in terms of our action in the world. Now, all evangelicals profess to believe the verses we just read. You know, by their actions, I would say that they deny that they believe in the inspiration of Scripture. They deny that they believe what, what uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about here. 
And I want to I want to first of all look at the foundational belief of Christianity. <clears throat> the foundational belief of Christianity is not salvation by grace. It's not justification. It's not the doctrine of redemption of Christ. The foundational belief in Christianity is that the Bible is the word of God. Because if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, then anything it says about God, anything that it says about anything is just going to be man's opinions. It's not going to be from God himself. So I would say this is absolutely foundational uh, to our Christianity, that every word that was written in the Bible is God's word. The NIV translates that first phrase of uh, verse 20 there, I mean of verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration. They translate, all scripture is God-breathed. Okay, that's the literal um, rendering of it. All scripture is God-breathed. It means every portion of the Bible, when it was written, was actually God's very words that were being spoken. Uh, God used the men as an instrument to write his words. And I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll take a look at, at an example of how scripture describes how the bible was written second peter chapter 1 and verses 20 through 21 <clears throat> he says knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture as of any private interpretation or private origin for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's saying Moses didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think our people need some laws, and I think they need to know something about origins. I think I'm going to write the Pentateuch. No, this says that it never came by the will of man. It was God who moved Moses to write that book. God used his style of writing, his vocabulary, his personality, but it was God's very words that were going through Moses at that point. Every word was God's word. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And so the scripture is God's word. It's inspired by God. And if you really believe that the Bible is God's word, you are going to hold this with reverence. It is not bibliolatry, as liberals try to make it out to be, to tremble at God's word. No, Scripture commands us to tremble at his word. We must revere it. We must honor it. Now, Paul also says all Scripture. What's included in that? <clears throat> well, I would say in context, you'd have to include at least the Old Testament Scriptures because it says in verse 15 of second timothy <coughs> chapter three that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures now there wasn't any new testament scriptures that had been written when he was a child there are several new testament scriptures were written by the time second timothy was written but when he was a child the only scriptures around were the old testament scriptures and he is saying all scripture means all of the old testament scriptures were inspired by god and that includes the imprecatory psalms that give such heartburn to some evangelicals that includes the hard passages of the old testament but you know what paul also includes all of the new testament scriptures in this because at this point there were already some new testament scriptures that were written that were recognized and were called scripture why don't you turn with me to first timothy 5 8 we'll look at an example first 
1 Timothy 5, 8. And I'm not going to give you an entire lesson on canon, but one of the things I think is very important to realize is that the canon was not developed by the church in 200 A.D. or something like that. No, the moment a portion of Scripture was written, it was included in the canon. It was declared to be Scripture, and it was put into the canon. It did not wait for people later on to compile it. Okay, here in 1 Timothy 5:18, Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke. And... Um, he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He says there's two things that the scripture says. The first one is a quotation from uh, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, and the second one is a quotation from Luke chapter 10 and verse 7. And so he's calling both Deuteronomy and Luke scripture. You see that? The scripture says, and then he quotes from two passages. So how do we know that Luke is inspired? It's in the canon of Scripture? Because Paul says so. He says that Luke is inscripturated. Now, we're not going to look at it right now, but 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, lumps all of Paul's writings in with the rest of the Scripture. So Peter says Paul's writings are Scripture, and uh, you'll see these, these quotes of, of, uh, of the various uh, passages here indicating that the scriptures the moment they were written were recognized as being a part of the bible by the way that's one of the reasons the apocrypha cannot be scripture because scripture is always included in the canon the moment it was written didn't wait for 1500 years for the roman catholic church to figure out they couldn't defend their doctrines you know from this canon so they had to expand it a little bit no it's it's immediately um uh, included now what difference should this make in our lives well, for one thing, if it's the very word of God, then it cannot contain error. I had a, a pastor tell me that Paul was wrong when he contradicted feminism. And I had another evangelical pastor that said that the, the uh, scriptures were wrong in the imprecatory psalms, that we should never sing those imprecatory psalms. You noticed we sang one earlier, right? asking for God's judgment on people, said, oh, that's not Christian. You should never do something like that, and it shouldn't even be in the canon. Uh, C.S. Lewis, by the way, held to that opinion. <coughs> I've got um, a syllogism here. It's just a form of logic where you make deductions from the Scripture that shows inerrancy. First premise says that the Bible says God cannot lie. And... Uh, there are, there are several scriptures that are given there in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages before. Second premise, the Bible says God is not ignorant. And it says uh, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, the, there is nothing hidden from his eyes. All things are open. He's omniscient. He knows the future. He knows the, the end from the beginning. And so God is omniscient. He is not ignorant. The third premise is all the Bible is the Word of God. And we've already read some of those uh, scriptures to you. Now, if you hold to those three premises, then the only conclusion you can come to is that the Bible is without error, that it is inerrant. Because the only way you can make an error is either deliberately, in which case you're lying, right? Or it's by making a mistake. You're ignorant. You didn't know what was on. But if God can never be ignorant of anything if he knows all things and if god uh, cannot lie 
then the only conclusion if every portion of the Bible is the Word of God is that the Bible is inerrant. Can you see that? Now, you don't need that syllogism because there's flat-out scriptures that say that uh, every word of scripture is true or that say, you know, that um, uh, the, the, the word endures forever, the scriptures cannot be broken. In fact, I forgot to put that on there. There's plenty of scriptures that talk about inerrancy, but I think that deduction there is uh, a useful deduction. <coughs> In this room, we all believe in inerrancy of Scripture, in theory. But I want us to get practical. We could point our fingers at people in the city that don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and that are even in cell net. That's one of the reasons I've just finally, as of this week, washed my hands of it and backing away. We're going to start another organization. Well, it's already started. It's uh, America-wide, I think. Uh, but um, we, I just... I just uh, began to realize this past week it's standing for pluralism it's not standing for unity unity is defined and uh, they're not willing to stand by the doctrinal statement that they held to but let's look in our own lives because i think it's important we point our fingers at ourselves and see is there way are there any ways in which we are implicitly by our actions denying that we believe in the inerrancy the inspiration the authority of scripture i think so-called academic respectability is a, a, a plague on the evangelical church. Over and over, I've heard evangelicals trying to accommodate the Word of God to the so-called findings of geology, or anthropology, or biology, or economics, or politics, or psychology, or sociology. I mean, there's so many different ways in which the church is trying to compromise God's Word. Missionary practices, I think you find this uh, happening where, <coughs> because of the findings of anthropology or sociology, they'll back off from certain scriptural imperatives, and they'll say, oh, well, that was just cultural, that was for back then. And so they've relativized, <coughs> they've relativized <coughs> all kinds of things, like the commands against um, the taking of private property and against covetousness, and they'll embrace socialism in, in, a, in a culture, or uh, their views on, on uh, polygamy or modesty or you name it. Academic respectability, I think, has ruined Calvin College on the whole issue of evolution, actually on many other issues as well, and I can never recommend people go to Calvin Col College. <coughs> there are teachers there who, because of their desire to be academically respectable, have said Moses was wrong. Genesis 1 through 11 is wrong when it comes to geology, and uh, we should not expect any accuracy that is there because Moses didn't know the things that we know now. Well, what he's forgetting about is that Moses was not moved to write that on his, on his own. The scripture says God moved him to write those scriptures. It was God's ideas through him. Now, they don't like to uh, lose money from their donors, and so they try to frame it in glowing language, you know, that, oh, this, these are wonderful chapters, you know, they teach spiritual truth. They, you know, just don't use it for geology. God doesn't speak to that. He just speaks to the heart. He speaks to issues, you know, of our salvation and things like that. And uh, I might say, well, I don't expect the Bible to be a textbook on geology either. It never claims to be a textbook. But when it speaks to geology, it speaks truth. I think that's the thing that we need to affirm. And uh, who would you trust more? Somebody that's been around since the beginning of this world? who created it, who sustains it, upholds all things by the word of his power, or somebody who was just born, you know, a few years ago, 
and has got a PhD, you know, I think I'd rather trust God. He knows what he was talking about uh, when, when he wrote the scriptures. According to the logic of the syllogism uh, on, on this Kelvin issue, either God was ignorant of geology or God was lying about geology or the current establishment view of geology is wrong. I think those are the only alternatives you can have. Either God was ignorant of it, God was lying about it, or the current establishment view of geology is wrong. Now, this does not mean that I'm an obscurantist because I believe that uh, there are plenty of uh, scientists who have demonstrated, I think conclusively, that everything points to a young earth, to no evolution, to a universal flood, just like the scripture says that it happened. But see, that's not the issue. That's not our authority. What we need to do is we need to say, as Isaiah said, to the law and to the testimony, if they, that is people out there, if they do not speak according to this word, that's the scripture, it is because there is no light in them. In other words, he's saying it's because they're ignorant, right? There's no light in them. So it's the scripture that judges geology, not geology judging the scripture. And I tell you, there are so many ways in which we can compromise in this area. We've, we need to watch out ourselves because the temptation is strong from peer pressure or from other groups. And here's another article I clipped out of the World Herald and had kind of a cute title on it. Raising baby the right way has changed. <laughs> and I thought, okay, if it, if it was the right way back then and it's changed, uh, was it really the right way in the first place? But it's a pretty interesting article. It goes through the history in America of the various opinions of the experts on how we ought to raise our children, okay? And there's all kinds of books that contradict each other, and they all say nobody knows how to raise their children. You need the experts, you know, to teach you how to do that. Oh, one of the first ones he lists here is um, John B. Watson, uh, who wrote a, a book saying how to raise your kids. And just as an, as an example, they, uh, they quote him here as saying, never hug or kiss your children. Uh, never let them sit on your lap. He cautioned, if you must, kiss them on the forehead when you say goodnight, shake hands with them in the morning. And they're, <laughs> they're saying here, I can't believe anybody would have believed that. And yet a whole, a whole culture at that time was adopting the, the views of Watson. Then they move on to another one. Then they move on to uh, another expert. This expert had quite a profound impact. It's Dr. Spock. An impact through the uh, 40s and the 60s. My parents uh, kind of uh, were influenced by him. And they have written here in this World Herald article, the Bible. And I thought, oh, cool. The Bi oh, oh, Dr. Spock is the Bible. <laughs> He's the Bible on child rearing, okay? So anyway, what, what this illustrated to me is that the experts are constantly changing on many different areas. And they point out a number of things, but spanking was one of them. Initially, spanking was A-OK. -okay. But then Dr. Spock said, no, that's going to ruin the child's uh, psyche and you ought not to do that. In fact, it's uh, downright child abuse, uh, many say. In fact, uh, they quote a professor at a larger university saying it's child abuse. Sweden has said so. And uh, the uh, Dr. Walter Alvarez, emeritus consultant at the Mayo Clinic, says doctors disapprove of spanking. Well, I know doctors who don't. <laughs> but the point that they're trying to get across is you got to listen to the experts. These guys know more about raising children than the scriptures do, and certainly more than the parents do. And, you know, 
what I'm wishing when I read something like that is that these guys could be locked up in the room with some of these juvenile delinquents for a month or two and see if their, you know, their opinions change on that. But uh, Scripture says, they say it's child abuse to give loving discipline. The Scripture says the opposite. You are abusing your child if you fail to discipline your child when your child needs it. Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And you say, no, I don't love him. The reason I don't want to spank him is because I love him. He says, no, that's ostensible hate. You may have an inward emotion of love, but your actions are the actions of, of hate. Proverbs says, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Hebrews says that discipline yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now listen, the total opposite, the statement that's made by Dr. Don Dinkemeyer in his book, Raising the Responsible Child, he says, this is an outdated approach. And so we need to ask, you know, is the Bible outdated? It was written thousands of years ago. And so is it outdated? And should we be looking to the experts who have been around now? You know, if they'd had those experts, they would have written the Bible maybe a little bit differently. And I think it's so easy for Christians to bow to the tyranny of the expert to say, you know, who am I? I don't, I don't know how to raise my kids, you know. They're turning out wild, and this guy's got a Ph.D. behind his name. Maybe he's even got a Christian title behind his name. And so I'm just going to take whatever he says. No, you've got to check it all against the Scripture, everything that is being said. <coughs> and the question of the tyranny of the experts, not just in that, you'll find it all over the place. Uh, many different areas where there's constantly changing opinions, but always they're dogmatic opinions. There's a new dogmatism that comes up. Okay, so Paul goes on to say that all Scripture is not only inspired, but it's profitable. It's profitable. We need the Scripture in this topsy-turvy world. It is profitable. And it's profitable not just for believers, it's profitable for unbelievers. And that's very important because a lot of people are embarrassed to bring God's word to bear in the lives of unbelievers. They think, oh, it's not going to be accepted. He's saying here, no, it is profitable. It's profitable for them. Bring it into their lives. The first way in which it's profitable, and there's three ways in which even the law of God is profitable for unbelievers, is seen in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in christ jesus <clears throat> he says it's not your testimony that saves people it's the scripture that has the power to save and the degree to which we really believe in the power of scripture is the degree to which we're going to be including the scripture in our conversations with unbelievers your testimony doesn't save them. Your testimony can fill out, it can give context, it can illustrate the Scripture, but the Scripture alone has the power to break through into hardened hearts and pierce through into their conscience. And you know what? The most powerful aspect of, bring, of the Scripture to bring people to Christ is the law, not the gospel. You might think, Phil, you're treading on, a, you're treading on dangerous ground here. You know, most modern evangelicals uh, nowadays, they give maybe 1% law, if there's even a mention of the law, and it's like 99% gospel, and they wonder why there's so much green fruit and people fall away again. Here's what Galatians 3.24 says. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Didn't say the, uh, the gospel was. He says the law is our tutor to bring us to christ that we might be justified by faith now why in the world would the law 
drive us to Christ? Why would the law force us to be justified by faith? Well, I believe it's because a strong preaching of the law of God is going to convince people they are such sinners, there's no way they can be justified by their own works. They're going to need a Savior. They're going to need the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And it's one of the reasons why J. Gresham Machen said, a new and more powerful proclamation of that law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. So it always is. A low view of law always brings legalism in religion. A high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. Pray God that the high view may again prevail. Uh, the Puritans, their method of evangelism was to preach 90% law, 10% gospel, because if you convince these people of the holiness of God, of the sinfulness of their own natures, it was going to be the easiest thing for them to adopt and believe and rejoice in the gospel that came afterwards. But we hardly ever mention the law of God. It's the law that drives people to Christ. It's the law that forces them to be concluding their only way they could be saved is justification uh, by faith. And that's one of the reasons I like Ray Comfort's tape, uh, uh, especially his tape on, on Hell's Best Kept Secret. You know, he's taking people back to the old-fashioned way of doing evangelism that the Reformers did. And that, you know, not even just the Reformed people. There are a lot of the, the Reformed people. The Reformed people used the law, but even Wesley, you know, these older evangelists, they used the law of God because they realized without it, you're going to pick green, feet, uh, green fruit. Now, the second use of the law is to restrain sin in unbelievers. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1. <coughs> 1 Timothy 1. And let's begin reading at verse 8. <clears throat> but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, what is he talking about? Lawful and unlawful uses of the law. Well, let me explain that briefly. And Christ dealt with this at great length in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees, uh, they would take laws that were given to the civil government and they would apply them in their own lives. For example, the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they would say, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back just as hard. Okay, it's revenge. Uh, you you uh, burned part of my field, okay? A week later, you watch out. Your house is going to get burnt down. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And what Christ was saying is, hey, you guys, that was intended for the civil government. That civil government is the instrument of vengeance. You go to the civil government if you need justice, but you, you need to show love to your enemies. You need to respond uh, with um, with uh, patience and leave vengeance to me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so that was an unlawful use of the law. They were taking something that was intended for the government. They were using it in their personal relations. Well, you know, another unlawful use of the law would be if we take a law that was given to individuals, such as, you know, charity, um, you know, mercy ministries and things like that, and the government were, would take that. And he says, well, the Bible says that we're supposed to do that. Ah, but that's an unlawful use of the law because that was addressed to individuals and the government's supposed to stay out of the mercy ministries business. They're in the justice business. So you, can you see that? So he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners. For the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, etc., perjurers, you know. He's saying the civil law was given 
you know, it's not for righteous people. They don't need to worry about the law. They can live as if there was no laws in effect. But you start breaking the laws, if you're a sinner, that's exactly where the law does its job. It restrains the sins that are in a nation. It has a, a good and a beneficial effect. And here's the problem. Many times we have a tendency to not want to bring God's law into those kinds of people's lives. We say, well, let, let's just keep it for ourselves because they don't believe in the law anyway. Now, he said he designed the law to be for the unrighteous. It's not even written for the righteous here. The reason that these uh, commands of Scripture need to be brought to the civil government is because that's precisely the realm where God intended that law to be. And so we ought not to be ashamed of bringing it into the public arena. So three uses that the Reformers gave for the law. Actually, there's four. <coughs> Scripture is profitable for an unbeliever's salvation. Secondly, to restrain criminal behavior. Thirdly, to give blueprints for social transformation. Let me just quickly give the fourth one. A fourth one is that the Reformers gave is it's a standard of righteousness and, love, uh, and of loving behavior between believers. Okay, it defines it for us. What is, what is love? But I, I want to look at that third one there of social transformation if we've got answers to the problems that plague our society we ought not to be keeping them in we ought to be sharing those uh, with our culture it's profitable for unbelievers when they see a society that is running according to uh, say free market economics as opposed to the economics that uh, flows out of other religious systems it's profitable for them they benefit from it we ought not to be ashamed of it in fact one of the things i was really encouraged by is seeing this professor at Bellevue University who is absolutely unashamed about printing all of his pages on biblical economics and saying that this is the only sustainable philosophical system that you can have. I'm going to have lunch with him this week. Uh, I'm blown away when I saw this. Bellevue University, they're even advertising it. But that's what we need to do because when people see it that's out there, they're going to say, wait a shake. This really is something that's beneficial to us. Do not be ashamed of the scriptures okay so it's profitable for unbelievers it's also profitable for those who are in christ those who are believers and that's what verses 16 through 17 says and i want to just break down this profitability he says first of all it's profitable for doctrine and keep in mind he says all scripture is profitable for doctrine now maybe you don't like doctrine <coughs> just like maybe you don't like vegetables but uh, they're good for you and uh, the doctrines that God has given into the Scripture, all of them, he says, are really for your good. Now, my wife has an excellent recipe for making zucchini not taste like zucchini. Now, I like zucchini, but some people don't. So she sticks it in like that. And I have tried very hard to make the zucchini of Scripture not taste like zucchini, but you're getting every drop of nutrients. I'm not always successful. Sometimes my preaching, you know, is just way over people's heads and it's like they're lost. But hopefully, over the coming years, you're going to grow in your appreciation for the zucchini of Scripture, and I'm going to grow in my ability to cook that zucchini for you. But it is profitable. I found a cute analogy for how we grow in our appreciation of the whole counsel of God. I said there are three stages of Bible study, and actually, instead of stages, you could just call on three kinds of Bible study. The cod liver oil stage, you take it like medicine because it's good for you. The shredded wheat stage, dried but nourishing. And the peaches and cream stage, a delicious treat. And I thought, you know, there are scriptures like that where people say, uh, you know, they're reading through the Bible and they're thinking, 
Let's just skip those pages. <laughs> those look kind of boring. And the scripture says, well, it may be shredded wheat, you know, it may be kind of dry, but it is nourishing. It's something that you ought to be, you ought to be reading through. Christ once said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, I want to read you something shocking. Just turn over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 5. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 5, <coughs> and let's see, let's read verses 12 through 14. <coughs> <clears throat> he said, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You, know, you need, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And he goes on in chapter 6, developing that theme. Now, here's, here's the shocking part about that. Hebrews says that the book of Hebrews is really the milk of the word. <laughs> I could just see Christians saying, what? You've got to be kidding. I thought Hebrews was stuff that only the super spiritual, you know, have to wade through. This is the principles that are the rudimentary things that lead us to higher things. And he says exactly right. Before you're even going to be able to eat the meat, you've got to be able to digest and you've got to be able to understand and apply the rudimentary functions that hebrews talks about it's the milk of the word now he wants us to get onto the meat and he defines what the meat is in verse 14 he said solid food belongs to those who are of full age that is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil now there is a spiritual sensitivity that comes from the holy spirit uh, in, in applying the scripture that no unbeliever is ever going to be able to have. But he says you've got to be exercising it. And just as an example, physicians, uh, they're constantly dealing with ethical issues that really challenge you, which is the right thing to do in this kind of a situation unless you're mature in understanding how the blueprints of scripture apply uh, to life, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna founder. There are a lot of politicians, Christians who go into politics in Washington, D.C., who unwittingly, you know, a week or two after they get in there, they're making sins. They're making wrong decisions. They don't realize it. Why? Because they're not yet grounded in the meat of the word. That's one of the reasons I want the National Reform Association to have a chapter here in Omaha so we can begin training some of these politicians, so we can begin preparing people for politics but people have got to be used to these ethical decisions, holiness, having their senses, discerning what is right, what is wrong in any given situation. So anyway, all of Scripture is profitable for those standards. And if you haven't read through the whole Bible, your life is saying you don't believe that. It's not really profitable. And if you don't read through the Bible many, many, many times from cover to cover, you're saying it's not as profitable as the scripture says that it is profitable. So one of my exhortations is start reading through the Bible in a year. <laughs> or if you can't do it in a year, do it in two years. But at least start going through the scriptures, familiarizing yourself with uh, all, all of its content. And uh, there are, there are uh, books that you can, obviously we don't have to know everything that a politician would have to, but it's, you know, if you're a citizen, you're going to need to know something about politics. And so I would encourage you to get the rudiments of the word. One great place to start on the rudiments of, of politics would be Gary DeMar's book, God and Government. 
just a little three-volume set. And uh, if you're going to be a politician, boy, there's a womp and big uh, reading list that I've got to give to you. But that'd be a great place to start. If you're, um, if you're a, um, you know, a domestic engineer, or somebody once called my wife, I don't know why, I think just wife and mother is a great term, but uh, there are some books that you're going to need to read to know how to effectively apply the scriptures in those areas. You can ask Kathy's advice on uh, some of those books. But the point is, all of us need to be studying that. Now, the next thing that Paul points out that all of Scripture is profitable for is reproof. <clears throat> now, what does reproof imply? Well, I would say at least it implies that it has authority over us, right? If you're reproving someone, it seems like you have uh, some kind of authority. Now, unfortunately, many evangelicals believe that only the New Testament can reprove our behavior because we're not under the Old Testament. We're just New Testament Christians, they say. Well, what Paul says here is, no, all Scripture. Did he include the Old Testament? Yeah, we've already demonstrated he did. And he says, all Scripture, including the Old Testament, continues to have the authority to reprove us. I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll look at a, a brief passage where Christ says much the same thing. <coughs> Matthew 5 and verse 17. <coughs> says do not think that i came to destroy the law or the prophets i did not come to destroy but to fulfill for assuredly i say to you till heaven and earth pass away as far as i've seen heaven and earth has not passed away yet till heaven and earth pass away one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. You know what the least of the commandments in the Old Testament was? You can find this in any of the Jewish writings. It was Deuteronomy 22, verse 6. And it's the law about, it forbids you, if you find a, a mother bird with its young in the nest, it forbids you taking the mother bird and the young. Now the mother bird's going to be fluttering around wanting to protect its young, so it's going to be very easy to get the mother bird. He says, no, you have to let the mother go. You can take the young, but don't take both together. And you might say, well, number one, I don't understand why God would do that. Number two, uh, how significant is that? But Jesus says that whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's saying exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul did, that all Scripture continues to have the authority to reprove our behavior. And uh, we need to take that, I think, very seriously. So on the one hand, we need to avoid the, the dispensational things that uh, that's Old Testament. We don't need to follow it. And on the other hand, we need to make sure we're not reproving with our own authority. Actually, it's not on the other hand because they're both the same. If you throw out God's law, our natures have to have law automatically. You're going to be substituting somebody else's authority or your own authority, and you're going to have legalism. Legalism and antinomianism are knit together. Anytime you have legalism, you're going to have antinomianism. Anytime you have antinomianism, you're going to have legalism. The only way we can have freedom apart from legalism is through the perfect law of liberty, James says. And so that's a rabbit trail. What are we going to be talking about on that? Oh, yeah, we want to avoid uh, having any reproofs in our own authority because 
we don't have authority to reprove except the authority of Scripture. Parents do not have authority to say this is right and this is wrong unless they have the authority of Scripture to back them up. And I think we need to be very careful, uh, even in how we raise our children, that we raise them, the Scripture says, in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Otherwise, you know what happens in our raising of the children? They begin to fear man rather than fear God. Their conscience is always attuned to what men say and men's opinions, which are constantly changing, and so their conscience is always going to be changing. And you're going to have all kinds of strange things happen. You're going to have lack of self-esteem or too much self-esteem or pride, or you're going to have legalism, or you're going to have a person's conscience that troubles them or a hardened conscience. But if their conscience is driven by God, the fear of God, you're going to be free of all of those things. And so, again, it's not our reproof. It's us bringing God's reproof through the Scriptures, I think, that is very important. Uh, it's God's Word that gives me the authority to stand before you and say, you guys need to change. My opinions don't count for anything. And you know, when Paul preached, when he wasn't giving Scripture, he praised the Bereans for checking out everything that he said according to the Scriptures. That's why Peter said, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, the oracles of God is the mouthpiece, right? And how we have the mouthpiece is by speaking God's law. Anytime we speak, we need to be speaking in terms of the Scriptures. We have no right to expect people to change unless God's Word gives the same reproof. So we're not adequate for reproof, but the Scriptures are, and they're profitable. For instance, what right does the government have to reprove a murderer? You might say, well, that's, that's pretty obvious. No, it's not. Philosophers have wrestled over this issue for centuries, and they have never been able to give a satisfactory answer. And what most ethicists have fallen back on when they're dealing with political issues like that is they say, um, it's not really an ethical issue. It's the old uh, philosophy of Thrasymachus, might makes right. The reason it's right is because the government's stronger than you, and they told you so, and they got the firepower to back it up. Okay, that's r really what it amounts to. They cannot philosophically defend why murder is wrong or why thieving is wrong if we are animals. And to, to steal, I mean, that's just natural behavior. Why wouldn't it be natural behavior for us? And so if you, if you study the philosophy of ethics, and especially political ethics, you, you'll just see people are tearing their hair out trying to figure out how do we say we know it's wrong, and the reason they know it's wrong is they're built in the image of God. God's written it on their hearts, but they're trying to get away from that. They're wanting to do it just rationally, and there is no rational way of saying murder is wrong, thieving is wrong, or any of the other laws are wrong. So what do they fall back on? Might is right. We're doing it. You have to do it because we told you to do it. Okay? Now, for Christians, the question of authority is no problem. Because all authority is appointed by God, and the right to reprove is given by God. Christ told Pilate, You could have no authority at all against me unless it had been given you from above. John 19, verse 11. Authority comes from God. Romans 13 says that government is to be the minister of God, an avenger of evil, and God defines what is evil and what is not evil. Uh, God has given them authority to reprove, and ultimately there is no authority except for God-given authority. And so Scripture is needed to give the authority to change behavior, whether it's parental, pastoral, state authority, it doesn't matter. Uh, the government 
state government has absolutely no authority to reprove you for failing to be a communist okay has no authority to reprove you for spanking your children has absolutely no authority to say you cannot preach the gospel that's why the apostles said we ought to obey god rather than men so again this whole issue of the scriptures being profitable is hugely profitable when you understand the philosophical problems of running a government you say hey if you have the scriptures you have the authority you've got the answers you don't need to defend yourself now these guys they still recognize that they're never going to get away with saying might makes right you talk to any politician and <laughs> no, they shy away from that and so they talk about morals and ethics committees and everything like that but when it, when push comes to shove there's no way that they can define why it's wrong and why they have that authority the next step beyond reproof is correction where reproof tells you what you're doing is wrong stop doing that correction gives you the blueprints it tells you what to do that is right you know gary north always says you can't beat something with nothing and uh, we have to have something in its place but a lot of evangelicals don't do that they've got these books that they're writing of everything that's wrong in society but they have nothing to replace it with why well they don't like the old testament blueprints and so they'll go in other directions uh, for authority but our our corrections our blueprints are not adequate they're not profitable the scripture blueprints are jesus said he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked <clears throat> john haynes <clears throat> have you ever thought how christ ran his business you know as a carpenter he was a carpenter for many years and um you know children have you ever thought through how jesus lived as a child um the scriptures tell us the problem with what the what would jesus do movement today is that it has absolutely no definition in fact i had a relative that was asked a question that was tough in the scripture I, you know i didn't even want to think about that that's not her conception she says when i want to know what god would do or how he thinks is i just close my eyes and say okay jesus what would jesus do that's humanism that is humanism pure and simple because you're concocting it out of your own consciousness what would jesus do how did he do his carpentry how did he do his child rearing he did it by keeping every detail of old testament law that's how he did it and first john says if you say if you claim that you, you are united to the lord jesus christ you need to walk like he walked how did he walk he kept the old testament law so to me it's a fairly simple uh, situation the bible is profitable for correction because it gives the blueprints that we need fourth all scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness now it's not enough to live the biblical blueprints we also need to teach them remember what we read in matthew 5 whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven we all teach sometimes we teach by modeling sometimes we teach outright but we all teach either humanism or we teach scripture and if we justify our behavior by saying hey everybody's doing it what we're doing is we're teaching people to uh, have their uh, standard of righteousness based on public opinion not the bible and if all scripture is profitable for instruction it means we need to teach all of the scripture now the last thing that paul says is scripture is profitable for equipping us for every good work far more important than university training is biblical training 
in business, economics, communication, ethics, relationships, leadership, skills, and all of the other things that go into making of a vocation. And if you believe that the Bible is the foundation for your vocation, how? How has the Bible made a difference? You need to ask yourself that. And I do want to end with a third major point. Roman numeral one was all scripture is inspired. Roman numeral two, all scripture is profitable. Roman numeral three, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. Verse 17 <coughs> of Second uh, Timothy 3. says that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, there are many evangelicals who, today who deny that the Bible is sufficient. They think we need to supplement it with psychology or with natural law or other things. But it says that the man of God may be complete. Those are radical words. Those are radical words. There's a rising number of people who don't like the Old Testament law. And they're saying we need to supplement it with uh, natural law. Now listen to what Knott Marshner said. The Bible and other revealed documents do not answer explicitly all the ethical questions that arise. So he's saying it's not sufficient to make us complete. <coughs> um, here's a, another guy. He's an evangelical, Alan Johnson, very popular writer. He wrote, is there a biblical warrant for natural law theories? He says, therefore, an evangelical ethic, which is a fully Christian ethic, though it will necessarily be a serious biblical ethic, will never be merely a biblical ethic. Not all moral obligation is rooted in Scripture. While Scripture will always be primary and final, it will always stand beside natural moral law knowledge. Evangelicals must come to grips with this more complete understanding of the Christian ethic, especially in the area of social ethics. And I think that's where the rubber meets the road and why people are opposed to theonomy. They don't like the Old Testament, and so they've got to substitute something else in its place. And so we need experts, experts who can determine laws from reason and common consensus, they say. And the examples that they bring forward are things like medicine. Ah, the Old Testament never anticipated that we would have all of the equipment to keep people li uh, alive so long. And so <coughs> the Bible doesn't address the ethical issue of whether to keep baby doe alive or Ann Quinlan or you know all of the other ethical issues over the past few years that have come up and we'd say no you're just ignorant of the scripture scripture does have the answers um, they would say scripture doesn't tell us whether we need socialized medicine uh, doesn't tell us how to deal with inflation or deficit spending and they go through all kinds of things but if you only follow the New Testament obviously the scripture is not going to be complete we need to take that word all seriously all scripture if it's all taken together it is sufficient to make the man of God complete. And then Paul re-emphasizes his point in that last phrase, thoroughly equipped for every good work, not partially equipped for some good work so that we can sort of stumble through life. God has not left us half provided for. And we need to ask ourselves, do we really believe that? Yeah, intellectually we believe that, but as John Edmiston said, your theology is really shown by how you act. And we need to ask, how do we act in life? There's many different ways in which we can test ourselves on that. We started with the whole area of, you know, to what degree we are driven by eternity. You know, our time on earth, even if you live to be 90 years old, is just a snap of the fingers in terms of eternity. And yet what we do on earth is going to be making a huge difference of what we are able to do in heaven 
and what foundation we're going to be moving from because we're laying up treasures in heaven we're establishing for ourselves our works follow us it says and so <clears throat> some people are going to be in heaven starting with nothing having zero authority and what we do through all of eternity is determined by what we do right now it shows what belief system has captured our hearts and it's my desire that every one of us would be captured with a vision of the whole bible to the whole person you know when we uh had our men's meeting a week ago wednesday i hope that's opened up a whole new vista of information on how the what the bible says about our bodies what the bible says about our emotions and all of the interactions that go in there and so be radical christians be people of the book devour the bible let the bible capture you and make sure that uh, you are people who want the whole bible for the whole of your life amen Father God, we come before you uh, once again rejoicing that you have given us a lamp to our feet in the Scripture. Forgive us for those times where we have just stumbled along with the flashlight turned off. We've refused to use your word. And Father, I pray that we would not only flash the flashlight of your word on our path, but Father, we'd be willingly spreading that light into the path of unbelievers as well, since it is profitable for both them and us. Father, bless this, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.